welcome to episode 98 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. We've spent the last three episodes talking about how Mao articulated what he had learned about conducting a revolution in rural China in the wake of the August defeat of 1928. And the document that we, we looked at in those episodes, it was my aim that we would get a concrete idea about Mao's learning process during the period from the autumn harvest uprising of 1927 through the reconquest of the Jingangshan by his forces in the aftermath of the August defeat. I chose to focus on the resolution of the Border Area Party Congress of early October 1928 in order to discuss those lessons. However, there is another major document from this time period, which we're not going to spend so long on, but which it would be remiss of me not to mention. I'm talking about the report that Mao wrote for the Communist Party Central Committee on November 25th, 1928, which appears in edited form in Mao's selected works under the title, The Struggle in the Jingong Mountains. The main reason why we won't spend more than just this episode on this major document is because, for the most part, it recapitulates many of the main points that we've already covered during the past three episodes. The documents uh, and the discussions and summations collectively arrived at more broadly, which came out of three major meetings from October and November, all served as a kind of rough draft for this major report to the Central Committee that Mao wrote toward the end of November. Uh, the three meetings included the October Base Area Party Congress, which produced the resolution that we examined so closely during the past three episodes, as well as an enlarged Base Area Special Committee meeting of November 6th and a Congress held for party members in the 4th Red Army held on November 14th to 15th. So because this report to the Central Committee repeats a lot that we've already covered, we won't spend as much time on it. However, because it goes into greater depth on some points and represents a bit more of a consolidated and refined summation than the October Resolution, I want to highlight how this document articulates some of the main issues that Mao was dealing with at the time. Uh, also, there are a few sections of the document as it was produced in 1928, which didn't make it into the version that appears in Mao's selected works. And uh, some of these have some historical interest that I want to highlight, uh, just because I find them interesting, and I assume that some of you listeners will as well. Uh, that said, we're really not going to do the document full justice, because that would just be too repetitive with the last few episodes of this show. So if you're really into this topic, uh, I encourage you to go and check out the whole document for yourself, at least in the version that was printed in the selected works, uh, which is available to, uh, to read online for free. And I've included a link in the show notes. And if you have access to a good academic library, uh, you can find an English translation of the original version of the document in the third volume of the Mao's Road to Power collection, uh, which is what I'm working off of here. Okay, let's look at the first excerpt that stands out for me here. I want to begin, actually, uh, with the very beginning of the document, which gives some immediate context for the writing of the report and which isn't included in the Selected Works version. Here goes. Okay, starting from the very beginning of the document. Quote, Hunan Provincial Party Committee, please forward this report to the Central Committee. Subheading 1, about the letter from the Central Committee. The June 4th letter from the Central Committee passed through the hands of the Jiangsha Provincial Committee and the Jian County Committee and did not reach the Jingangshan 
till December 2nd. This is an excellent letter. Uh, by the way, I, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt the reading here. That's actually a typo in this. It re- they received it on November 2nd, obviously, because this uh, and this report is being written November 25th. So anyways, that's just a typo that's in the document. This is an, in- an excellent letter. It has corrected many of our mistakes and resolved many controversial issues here. As soon as it arrived, we sent copies to party committees at all levels, both in the army and in the localities. Uh, troops would had, which had set out for Sui Chuen gathered in Jingongshan on November 6th, and the special committee called a meeting of over 30 people to discuss the letter from the central committee. Participants were special committee members and activists in the army and in the localities. Those who attended included Zhu De, Chen Yi, He Dingying, uh, He Changgong, Yuan Wensai, Wang Zuo, uh, Tan Zhenlin, Deng Ganyuan, Li Chuifei, uh, Chen Zhengren, Wang Zuonong, Xiao Wansha, Liu Huixiao, Xie Chunbiao, Liu Di, Xiong uh, Shouqi, Yang Kaiming, Cao Shuo, Deng Jiuting, Mao Zedong, uh, Song Chaosheng, and Peng Gu. Uh, the representative of the Hunan Provincial Committee, Yuan Desheng, also participated. It was recognized that, apart from one or two points relating to concrete circumstances, such as the recommendations that guerrilla warfare should be extended to an excessively wide area and that the system of party representatives should be abolished, all the principles and strategies embodied in the letter were extremely appropriate to the current situation, and we should act accordingly. A front committee was also immediately organized as the party's supreme organ in the border area. In accordance with the letter, the front committee now comes under the jurisdiction of the Jiangsha Provincial Committee because it is in Jiangsha at the moment. When it moves to Hunan, it comes automatically under the jurisdiction of the Hunan Provincial Committee. At the same time, it can request direct instructions from the Central Committee through these two provincial committees. Unfortunately, of the four appendices to the letter from the Central Committee, we have decoded only two. The two that have been converted into plain texts are Confiscate the Land and Establish the Soviets and the February Resolution of the International. We are unable to decode two other documents, military work and organizational problems. We need them badly. Please send us as soon as possible the deciphering code or send us another copy. Uh, End quote. Uh, What's very interesting to me here about this passage is what it tells us about the logistics of the relationship between the Jingongshan communists and the central party authorities. We can see that this letter of June 4th only arrived in the base area on November 2nd. Um, And by the way, that that typo I I called out during the um, reading of the document, that's not a typo in um, the book I'm reading. That's a typo that's in the uh, original original document, which is why they reproduced it in the the Mao's Road to Power version of this document. Anyways, so we can see that this letter of June 4th only arrived in the base area on November 2nd, taking almost five months to arrive. And even then, the communists in the base area didn't have the necessary codes in order to decipher part of what had been sent to them. So this gives us a concrete sense of the distance involved and the difficulties in communication between the communists in the base area and the central authorities in Shanghai. 
this June 4th letter from the Central Committee was greeted with a lot of happiness by Mao and the other leaders in the base area, because what it did was to free them from subordination to the Hunan Provincial Committee and the Communist Party's organizational hierarchy. The special committee that Mao had led was abolished and a front committee was formed in its place. Um, at some historical distance, it just seems like a name change for the leading body of the base area. But at the time, the significance of the name change was that this new body was ultimately a special body subject, ultimately to the Central Committee itself, uh, even though, as we can see from the text, it was supposed to also consult with the Jiangsha and Hunan provincial committees, uh, depending on where the front was mainly operating at the time. This meant that there would no longer be any need for Mao to entertain the meddling of the Hunan provincial leaders, who he had persistent disagreements with, and whose interference had contributed considerably to the loss of the 29th Regiment and the August defeat, as we saw in episodes 89, 92, and 93. And yet, in the text of this introduction to the report, we already see uh, Mao disagreeing with the Central Committee on one of the same issues that he had with the Hunan provincial leadership. In the June 4th letter, the Central Committee had called on Mao to extend warfare beyond what he deemed prudent, just as we saw the Hunan Provincial Committee do back in episode 89. And Mao here dismisses the suggestion as inappropriate to the current situation, uh, just as he did with earlier orders from the Hunan leadership. Okay, there's more that we could draw out from this paragraph, not least of which is how so many of these names that are listed are people who would go on for decades to play leading roles in Chinese and, and by extension, global history, given the global significance of the events of 20th century China. But I want to get to some more excerpts from this document before we put it aside. After this introductory paragraph, the report goes on to spend a few pages reviewing the recent history of the communist forces and their struggle in and around the base area, which is all stuff uh, we've covered in some detail in this podcast, so I won't dwell on it here. Then the document gets to its final large section, which is titled Existing Problems. Uh, the first and longest subheaded section here is Military Problems. And here I want to highlight Mao's discussion of the class origins of the Red Army soldiers. Here's what Mao says. Few of the peasants in the border area are willing to serve as soldiers. As soon as the land is divided up, everyone goes to till it. Now the soldiers of peasant or working class origin in the 4th Army in the border area constitute an extreme minority. Thus the problem is still very great. The Hunan Provincial Committee promised to send us workers from Anyuan, and we hope this will be done very soon. Composition. Um, just as an aside, this I sort of broke into the document in the middle of one sub-subheading, and now this next sub-subheading here is composition, as in the composition of the Red Army. One part consists of workers and peasants, and the other of vagrants. So it is not true to say, as the Hunan Provincial Committee does, that they are all vagrants. It is urgently necessary to replace this contingent of vagrants by workers and peasants. But workers and peasants are hard to come by. On the one hand, fighting is going on every day, and the vagrants are, after all, particularly good fighters. At the same time, casualties continue to mount. Consequently, not only can we not diminish the vagrants now in our ranks, but it is difficult to find more for reinforcements. Under the circumstances, 
The only solution is to intensify political training so as to affect a qualitative change in these elements. Four, nature. The majority of the soldiers are men from the mercenary armies who have been transformed. Once they join the Red Army, the mercenary system is abolished. Hitherto, there has been no system of regular pay, but only an allowance for food and pocket money. Uh, and from here, the document goes on uh, to discuss issues of land redistribution to soldiers and uh, takes us away from this discussion I want to focus on that Mao had there that I just read out about the class nature of the Fourth Red Army soldiers. So what's going on here? Mao's saying that most of the soldiers making up the Fourth Red Army are coming from two different social groups, both of which are coded as somewhat undesirable, according to the form of class analysis that the communists were using at the time. They were vagrants and mercenaries. And Mao clearly would prefer people who he can code as peasants and workers to be his soldiers, but makes clear that, for practical reasons, it looks like the Red Army will mainly be made up of vagrants and mercenaries for some time to come. But we also know that the Chinese Revolution was, among other things, a massive peasant war. Nobody really disagrees about this. So what does Mao mean when he talks about most of his soldiers being vagrants and mercenaries at this time? Let's take each of these categories of people separately. First, who are the vagrants? Uh, the episodes that we did where we talked about the economy and society of the Jingongshan, episodes 63 and 64, will be helpful for thinking about who these vagrants were who joined the Red Army. They were people who were landless and had been forced by poverty and circumstances to engage in a range of hustles in order to survive, including sometimes participating in bandit operations, which might sometimes be a sort of social banditry and sometimes take more antisocial and predatory forms. In a certain broad sense, these people were connected to the peasantry because they were rural people and often had family connections or fictive kinship connections with people who lived by working the land. I think that from a historical distance and taking in the Chinese Revolution in broad strokes, most historians would consider, uh, would group these vagrants in with the peasantry as a social category that encompasses a range of different people. Uh, there's a rough parallel uh, between these Jingongshan vagrants and the people that often get coded as the lumpen proletariat in the developed capitalist world. Uh, people have been excluded from regular work for most of their lives in one way or another, and therefore have to engage in any number of hustles and sometimes criminal activity in order to survive, but who clearly form a part of a broad conception of the working class in places like the United States uh, because of their importance as part of the reserve army of labor, in addition to their personal ties uh, uh, with uh, more traditionally defined workers, especially among the most exploited sections of the working class. Um, as we can see in the passage that I read, the Hunan Provincial Committee had seized on the large number of vagrants in Mao's armed forces as a point to criticize him on, and Mao defends himself here on practical grounds. Uh, even before becoming a guerrilla leader, though, Mao had seen revolutionary potential in the marginalized and sometimes criminal elements in society. Uh, back in his January 1926 an, uh, article, an analysis of the various classes among the Chinese peasantry and their attitudes toward the revolution, 
uh, which was a kind of follow-up to the 1925 analysis of all the classes in Chinese society that we discussed in episode 33. Mao wrote this about the vagrants as a subclass of the peasantry. The vagrants consist of peasants who have lost their land and handicraft workers who have lost all opportunity of employment as a result of oppression and exploitation by the imperialists, the warlords, and landlord class, or as a result of natural catastrophes such as flood and drought. They can be divided into soldiers, bandits, thieves, beggars, and prostitutes. These five categories of people have different names, and the status accorded them by society is also somewhat different. But they are one in that each of them is a human being having five senses and four limbs. They each have their different ways of making a living. The soldier fights, the bandit robs, the thief steals, the beggar begs, and the prostitute seduces. But to the extent that they all seek to make a living and get food to eat, they are all one. They lead the most precarious existence of any human being. They have secret organizations everywhere, which serve as their organizations for mutual aid in the political and economic struggle. For example, there is the Triad Society in Fujian and Guangdong, the Elder Brother Society in Hunan, Hubei, Guizhou, and Sichuan, the Big Sword Society in the provinces of Anhui, Henan, and Shandong, the Society of Observance of Principle in Zhili and the three northeastern provinces, and the Green Gang of Shanghai and elsewhere. To deal with these people is the greatest and the most difficult problem facing China. China has two problems, poverty and unemployment. Hence, if the problem of unemployment can be solved, half of China's problems will be solved. The number of vagrants in China is fearfully large, probably more than 20 million. These people are capable of fighting very bravely, and if a method can be found for leading them, they can become a revolutionary force. And as we've seen, it wasn't too long before Mao began to grapple in very practical ways with how to harness the vagrants as a revolutionary force. But Mao is also going to become very frustrated with this task. As a taste of what is yet to come, here are some quotes from a June 1930 resolution that Mao drafted entitled, The Problem of Vagabonds. And while the term vagabond is different from vagrant, we'll see from how he defines the term that the term is meant to include the people we've been discussing as vagrants. His definition here is very similar to his earlier definition of vagrants. Quote, The brutal exploitation by imperialism in semi-colonial China has led to widespread bankruptcy among peasants and handicraft workers, thus creating an enormous mass of unemployed. Since there could be no large-scale national industries to absorb them, these unemployed masses have no way out, and this gives rise to large numbers of vagabonds. Vagabonds have approximately 30 illegitimate occupations, such as bandits, thieves. Or, uh, actually, these are numbered in the documents. So I'm going to give you the numbers. One, bandits. Two, thieves. Three, prostitutes. Four, mercenary soldiers. Five, opera performers. Six, errand runners. Seven, gamblers. Eight, beggars. There are large masses of the above eight categories. The categories below contain relatively few people. Nine, Court henchmen. 10. Baoja henchmen. Um, Baoja, we can loosely translate as uh, sort of community policing. Um, 11. Witnesses, with certain exceptions. 12. Opium shop owners. 13. Opium shop assistants. 14. Diviners. 
Um, this would be like fortune tellers, although 15 is fortune tellers, so there's a slight difference. 16, physiognomists. 17, geomancers with certain exceptions. 18, jugglers or acrobats. 19, remedy and ointment peddlers. 20, martial arts demonstrators with very few exceptions. 21, itinerant teachers. 22, hired snoops. 23, kidnappers. 24, vandals. 25, matchmakers. 26, traders in human beings. 27, monks with certain exceptions. 28, Taoist priests with certain exceptions. 29, witches. 30, Christian converts with certain exceptions. What are called vagabonds in the current controversy should be limited to those in the categories listed above. They constitute a rough average of 5% of society's total population, there being approximately 20 million of them in the whole country. They have the following characteristics. 1. They are divorced from production. 2. They have illegitimate and unstable occupations and rely on deception, robbery, and begging for a livelihood. 3. They live irregular lives. So there's Mao's expanded definition. Uh, now I'm going to quote at some length here now from the 1930 resolution because it's indicative of some of the issues that are going to arise out of the necessity that Mao faced of continuing to recruit soldiers heavily from among this section of people. Quote, Once we have understood the social position of the vagabonds and their role in the revolution, we can determine the tactics to deal with them. The party's overall tactics toward vagabonds should be to wrench the vagabonds out from under the ruling class, provide them with land and jobs, force them to work, thus changing their social conditions, and finally transform them from vagabonds into non-vagabonds. Under special circumstances, they can be used temporarily so as to separate them from the ruling class. Then proper arrangements should be made for them, or their forces should be temporarily used to destroy the ruling class. But under no circumstances should the slightest political concession be made to the vagabonds. When vagabonds harbor counter-revolutionary conspiracies, have counter-revolutionary potential when they hinder the struggle of the masses so that the masses cannot rise up unless the vagabonds are wiped out or when the vagabonds hiding behind revolutionary banners are suppressing the masses or when they are resolutely opposing the revolution and helping the ruling class to confront the revolutionary masses to the end, they should be eliminated without any hesitation. Not only should their leaders be eliminated, but some or all of their masses should also be destroyed whenever necessary. The Red Army and the Red Guards are the important tools of the revolutionary masses in seizing state power and protecting it. The components of these important tools must all be workers, peasants, and revolutionaries. No vagabonds can be allowed to penetrate into these organizations. Now, the Red Army and the Red Guards contain many vagabonds who are the worst violators of discipline. Their interests are counter to that of the, all the fighting masses. They also behave in a cowardly fashion on the battlefields, afraid to advance. Although they sometimes demonstrate bravery, they do so for selfish interests and not to fulfill the tasks of a particular class. The adventurism and roving rebelism in the course of guerrilla warfare are generated by them. On every occasion, they are always the ones who drag their feet or run away. Unless these elements are eliminated and workers, peasants, and revolutionaries join the Red Army and Red Guards to take their place and transform the organization of the Red Army and Red Guards, 
such a Red Army and Red Guards will be very dangerous. Only by getting rid of them can the Red Army and the Red Guards be perfected so as to implement the great tasks of the class. In addition, eliminating all anti-organization and anti-discipline elements is the only way to win over the masses on a large scale and enable them to join the Red Army willingly and fulfill the task of expanding the Red Army and enlarge the scope of the struggle. This is not to say that the Vagabond elements now in the Red Army must be expelled within 24 hours, but the Vagabonds must be systematically replaced by activists of the struggle of workers and peasants, and any inner-party protection of Vagabonds must be firmly opposed. Criticism should be made of the illusions of still having some hope of being revolutionary, of the viewpoint that all sorts of people may join the Red Army, the Vagabonds should not be attacked during the guerrilla war, but only at the time of the armed uprising. As long as the officers do a good job of leading, the organizational makeup of the troops is not important. And erroneous and strange opinions such as, if we don't want the Vagabonds now, then we won't want the peasants later, and we won't want the workers in the future, and we'll be left with only the Communist Party. Great efforts must be made to wipe out roving rebelism, pure militarism, escapism, policies of burning and killing, the system of corporal punishment, individual hedonism, individual heroism, small group mentality, ultra-democratism, and other erroneous political and organizational ideas of the vagabond elements. At the same time, those with only a few vagabond habits should receive appropriate education. Uh, so we can see that Going forward from where we are at in 1928, this issue of discipline in the Red Army and continually transforming the Red Army soldiers is going to be a major task of Mao's. And as we can tell from this June 1930 resolution, often an unsuccessful one. Now, turning to the second category of people that Mao mentioned in his November 1928 report to the Central Committee as constituting the bulk of the soldiers in the 4th Red Army, these are mercenaries. Since we've seen mercenaries included in both Mao's 1926 and 1930 discussions of vagrants and vagabonds, we can assume that much of what was said in general about, vagr about vagrants and vagabonds also applies to this group. But why are they singled out here in the 1928 report to the Central Committee? As Mao makes clear in this report, the main source from which the Red Army had been of necessity replenishing its ranks was from prisoners of war. Basically, you had these desperate men, most of whom came from poor peasant backgrounds, who had joined these Guomindong and warlord armies. Uh, the story of these men is not dissimilar to Judah's early years, which we discussed back in episodes 77 to 80. Once captured by the Red Army, these men were given some basic political lectures on the nature of Chinese society and the revolution that the communists were fighting for, and given the option of either going home or joining up with the Red Army. Uh, these were very poor people in general who had few options in life other than the soldiering life that they had chosen. And so the choice to switch sides and join the communists rather than to go home penniless, if they even had a home to go to, was a natural one for many of them. And Mao characterizes their consciousness of the political struggle and willingness to fight for the revolution in these terms in the November 1928 report. Quote, in general, the Red Army soldiers are all endowed with class consciousness. They have acquired basic political knowledge about such things as land distribution, establishing Soviets, and arming the workers and peasants. They already know that they are fighting for themselves and for the workers and peasants. 
Consequently, they can endure even this miserable life and these fierce struggles without complaint. End quote. But we can also see from the June 1930 resolution that the transformation of these mercenaries uh, will be slow and uneven, and some of them will eventually create major problems for the revolution. One of the reasons I wanted to take a little time to discuss this issue of vagrants and mercenaries from the November 1928 report is that much of this does not make it into the selected works version of this document. And I think that the, the reason for this is indicative of the way in which the stories that triumphant revolutionaries tell about their victories differ from the actual process of the revolution as it happened. Uh, a difference that can have fatal consequences for people who try to copy a revolution strategy as told and even as taught by the victors rather than studying the process of the revolution as it actually happened. Understanding the Chinese revolution as a struggle waged by what was, at least for a time, an army comprised in its majority by people from what would later have been classified as uh, unclean or in inherently morally compromised backgrounds, is necessary to have a more realistic understanding of the revolutionary process as it actually took place in China, and not as uh, some sort of triumphant march of a morally untainted poor peasantry. Okay, there's one more section I'd like to highlight in this document before we move on. The next subheaded section of the existing problems section of the document is titled The Land Problem. However, the bulk of this section is really made up of the problem of dealing with the better-off peasants. In the document, the terms intermediate class and intermediate classes are used here, but what Mao is really mainly talking about is the problem of how to win over, or at least keep from antagonizing, the better-off peasants in the area. These are people that in later Maoist categorization schemes will come to be known as rich and upper-middle peasants and also some small landlords. For those of us living in the developed world of 2022, and uh, I know I've said this in past episodes, but it's worth repeating, the term rich peasant is a very relative term. Uh, no one in the United States today would consider any of these people rich by a long shot. What it concretely meant in the circumstances of 1928 rural China was that these people had enough to eat and weren't living on the precipice of economic catastrophe, and that they could maybe send their sons to get some schooling and, as a result of all this, enjoyed some status in the local peasant community. Now, last episode, we read about how the communists in the Jingongshan had decided to implement a red terror policy as a result of how so many of the better-off peasants had collaborated with the Guomindang armies and landlord militias when they occupied most of the base area during the August defeat. This represented a major shift for Mao from policies that had tried to win over the better peasants, or at least get them to some sort of friendly neutrality toward the revolution. That document was written in early October. Now, in late November, Mao is again swinging the other direction trying to figure out how to neutralize and potentially win over these rich and upper-middle peasants. Recognizing that they tend to work against the revolution, especially when the revolution doesn't treat them well, and kind of trying to figure out a balance between carrot and stick in dealing with these people. Uh, here are some excerpts from the document. Roughly speaking, there are three classes in the countryside. The despotic gentry class, who are big or middle landlords, 
the intermediate class of small landlords and owner peasants, and also the class of the poor peasants. Within the intermediate class, the interests of the owner peasants are often interwoven with those of the small landlords. The owner peasants account for a small proportion of the total land, but when their holdings are combined with the land held by small landlords, the total is considerable. This is probably more or less the case throughout the country. The policy in the border area is to confiscate all land and redistribute it thoroughly, so that in the areas of red political power, the class of the despotic gentry and the intermediate class are both under attack. Such is our policy, but in applying it, we have encountered considerable obstruction from the intermediate classes. In the initial stage of the revolution, the intermediate classes pretended to capitulate to the poor peasant class, but in reality, they were plotting to take advantage of their former social status and clan influence to spread rumors and to intimidate the poor peasants so as to delay the distribution of the land. When higher-level political authorities put pressure on them until they could no longer delay things, they either concealed their actual holdings or retained the good land and gave up the poor land to others. During this period, the poor peasants, having long been trampled down, and because the victory of the revolution was not assured, were often tricked by the intermediate classes and did not dare to act resolutely. Vigorous action is taken against the intermediate classes in the countryside only when the revolution is on the upsurge. For example, when political power has been seized in one or several counties, when the reactionary armies have suffered several defeats, and when the Red Army has repeatedly demonstrated its prowess. For example, it is in the southern section of Yongxin County, where the intermediate classes are most numerous, that delays in distributing the land and cheating and reporting landholding were most flagrant. Only after the Red Army won its great victory at Long Yuan Ko on, on June 23rd, and only after the district government killed several people for delaying distribution, was land actually distributed there. But since the feudal family system is widespread in every county, and all the families in a village or group of villages often have the same surname, a fairly long time will be required for class polarization to take place in the villages and for clan ideology to be overcome. In the countryside, where clan organizations prevail, the most troublesome are not the despotic gentry, but the intermediate classes. This is the biggest problem. So here Mao lays out the basic problem. There's a fairly influential group of peasants who are doing okay, these owner peasants, later in the revolution to be called rich and upper middle peasants, whose economic interests are often tied up with local exploiting classes, small landlords in particular, who are not going to be happy when land is redistributed because they're going to lose land, even if at the end of the day, these peasants might be better off were all the reforms of the revolution to be carried out. Also, these peasants tend to have considerable prestige in local society, particularly in clan organizations, and they tend to be the local leaders in these villages where everyone belongs to the same extended family. These are not natural friends of the revolution. But also, there's a sense in which these really should not be enemies of the revolution either, at least not in some ideal world. Uh, these are people with many connections, especially family ties, with the poor peasants who make up the majority of the base area population, and they're not serious exploiters themselves. Let's move on with the document and see how Mao develops this discussion. The Defection of the Intermediate Classes Under the White Terror The intermediate classes 
had been under attack during the high tide of revolution, so they defected as soon as the White Terror arrived. It was none other than the small landlords and owner peasants in the two counties of Yongxin and Ningong who led the reactionary army to burn the homes of the revolutionary peasants there. They were very bold about burning down houses and arresting people at the direction of the counter-revolutionaries. When the Red Army returned to the area around Ningong in September, Xinchang, Guchang, and Longsha, several thousand peasants who had heard and believed the reactionary propaganda that the communists would kill them fled with the counter-revolutionaries to Yongxin. Only after we had conducted propaganda to the effect that peasant defectors will not be killed and peasant defectors are welcome to come back to harvest their crops did some of these peasants slowly return. These are events that we've talked about at some length in past episodes, so I won't dwell on them here. However, I do want to draw your attention to how Mao phrases things here. He says that the intermediate classes had been under attack during the high tide of revolution, so they defected as soon as the white terror arrived. If, in our first excerpt, it might have seemed that Mao was explaining how circumstances naturally had created an antagonism between the communists and the rich peasants, even to the extent that some had to be executed in order to get the land redistribution to go forward in part of Yongxin County. Here it seems that Mao is implying that the communists had gone too far in pushing the rich peasants toward the counter-revolution. Okay, let's move on with the document. When the revolution is at low ebb in the country as a whole, the most difficult problem in the areas ruled by the independent regime is keeping a firm grip on the intermediate class. This class rebels mainly because it has received excessively heavy blows from the revolution. When there is a revolutionary upsurge in the country as a whole, the poor peasant class has something to rely on and becomes bolder, while the intermediate class has something to fear and dares not create a disturbance. Now that there is a high tide of counter-revolution in the whole country, the intermediate classes which have suffered our blows have gone over almost completely to the despotic gentry, and the poor peasant class has become isolated. This is truly a serious problem. In this last excerpt, Mao pretty clearly is blaming the revolution for having excessively attacked the intermediate classes. Yet, he hasn't amended his initial analysis of the overall situation, which put forward in pretty clear terms the antagonism which objective circumstances would create between communists and the rich peasants. Uh, and this is how Mao leaves things in this document. On the one hand, clearly communist policies of land redistribution are going to alienate the rich peasants. On the other hand, Mao is saying that communists should not be so hard on these rich peasants because if they are, the rich peasants will strengthen the counter-revolution. It's clear at the end of this last excerpt that Mao sees the poor peasants standing alone as representing an unfavorable polarization of class forces in the countryside for the revolution. Somehow, policies must be devised which win over these intermediate strata. This is going to be an ongoing concern of Mao's in the revolution, and ultimately, he's going to have some concrete proposals for how to do this. And most historians would argue that Mao's success hinges in part on how he does eventually solve this problem, or at least deals with it well enough, because by its nature, it's not an entirely solvable problem. But at this point, Mao isn't quite sure what to do. And toward the end of this section of the document, Mao indicates this by saying, quote, We request the Central Committee and the two Provincial Committees to instruct us as soon as possible regarding the methods, 
the concrete methods, not merely the broad policy, used by Soviet Russia in dealing with the rich peasants, especially during the Democratic Revolution, when the Soviet government was surrounded by the white regime. End quote. Okay, that's it for Mao's November 25th, 1928 report to the Central Committee. Uh, this document is one of the classics of the Chinese Revolution, and we have in no way fully done it justice here, uh, mainly because I didn't want to get repetitive with our recent episodes. But I do want to encourage those of you who have some time and inclination to go ahead and read it for yourselves. I think that if you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, or at least since the base area in the Jingong Mountains got set up, uh, you will get a lot out of this document um, that you might not have gotten had you gone into it cold uh, without having the historical background. All right, take care and see you next time.